reading of God's word. And we'll stand in reverence and honor of the holy breath of God breathed out to us in his word. Romans 8, 18 through 30. For I consider that the suffering of this present time not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. And not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption of that is the redemption of our body. For we are saved in this hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Likewise, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these also he called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And those whom he justified, these he also glorified. You may be seated. What amazing hope that we have. In this passage, I'm going to go on to share with us today that there's three reasons that Paul gives us why we can have hope. Many of our church family has gone through or going through or is about to go through suffering. Every week I get a phone call or I get a text or someone comes to me in person and shares a burden, a suffering, a sorrow. And I think it was, it was Rick was telling me that he met somebody, a young person, and they felt so despondent that they actually had a tattoo written on them saying that they needed hope. We're living in an age where Suicide is higher, drug use is higher, discouragement and despair is higher than ever before. And it's one simple reason we have taken God out of our culture. We've taken God out of our lives. And there's no hope. If 
if there is no God, if there's no life after this life, then in reality, there is no hope. That's, that's the truth of it. And as believers, we have strong consolation who have run to Jesus to find refuge, to lay hold on the hope that is set before us. We ought to be people of hope, and we should be giving other people hope. We should be giving them the gospel because the gospel is hope. We are saved in the hope of everlasting life. That's what Jesus promises us. And Paul lays out three reasons for hope. One is that all of creation, all of creation, as glorious as creation is, we ain't seen nothing yet. The second reason that we have great hope is we have been given the Holy Spirit who knows how to pray for us when we don't even know how to pray for ourselves. And the third reason that we have absolute hope is because the ones that God has previously known in the past, like Joseph and like Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, and all those saints, those are the ones that he previously knew, we can look at their example and we know that God works all things together for good. To the ones who are the called according to his purposes, to those who love God. So we have great consolation. We have great hope this morning. I'm going to try to read to you a letter for my introduction, and I don't know if I'm going to be able to get through it. I read it this week, and every time I tried to read it, I would I'd start to cry. So I'm going to try to get through it this morning. But it was a letter that James Dobson wrote. Didn't No, he didn't write it. I'm sorry. It was written to him, and he wrote it on one of his broadcasts. Years and years ago. Many of you probably don't know who James Dobson is today, you younger people, but us older folks, like Robert and I, <laughs> we remember Focus on the Family with James Dobson. But it was a father who wrote this in memory of his daughter. Her name was Bristol. My dear Bristol, before you were born, I prayed for you. In my heart, I knew that you would be the little angel, and so you were. And you were born on my birthday, April 7th. It was evident that you were a special gift from the Lord. But how profound a gift you turned out to be. More than a beautiful bundle of gurgles and rosy cheeks. More than the firstborn of my flesh, a joy unspeakable. You showed me God's love more than anything else in all creation. Bristol, you taught me how to love. I certainly loved you when you were cuddly and cute, and when you rolled over and sat up and jabbered your first words. I loved you when the searing pain of realization took hold that something was wrong, that maybe you weren't developing as quickly as your peers and that when I understood that it was more serious than that, 
I loved you when we went from hospital to clinic to doctor, looking for a medical diagnosis that would bring some hope. Of course, we always prayed for you, prayed, and prayed some more. I loved you when all the test results, and in one time that they took too much spinal fluid from you when they drew, and your body seared with pain and you screamed. I loved you when you moaned and cried, when your mom and your sisters and I would stay up late into the night, I would put you into the car and drive you until you fell asleep. I loved you with tears in my eyes when confused you'd bite your fingers and your lip by accident and then your eyes crossed and eventually went blind. Most of all, I loved you when you could no longer speak but how profoundly I missed your voice. I loved you when your scoliosis started to wrench your body. I'm just thinking of the father here, like a pretzel. When they put a tube in your stomach so that you could eat because you were choking on your food, when we fed you with spoonfuls at a time, it would take hours and hours for you to eat your meal. I managed to love you when your contorted limbs would not allow with ease anymore the changing of your messy diapers. Many, many diapers, 10 years of them. Bristol, I even loved you when you could not say the one thing in life that I longed to hear. Daddy, I love you. Bristol, I loved you when I was close to God and even when I seemed far away, when I was full of faith and when I was also full of anger. At the reason, and the reason I loved you, Bristol, in spite of these difficulties, is because God put this love in my heart. This is the wondrous nature of God's love, that he loved me when I was blind and deaf and twisted and contorted in my sin. God loves us when we can't or even won't tell him that we love him back. My dear Bristol, you are now free. I look forward with hope for that day, according to God's promises, when we will be joined together with you, with the Lord, completely whole and full of joy. I'm so happy that you received your crown first. We will follow you someday in his time. Before you were born, I prayed for you. In my heart, I knew you would be the angel, and you were loved, Daddy. Hope is an amazing thing. And this is what Paul is saying in this first section, that all of creation is waiting, and we are eagerly awaiting the redemption of our bodies, that one day we will see Christ as he is and we will be like him. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul said this, Though the outward man perishes, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. 
And then he says, our light afflictions, which are but for a moment, are working for us a far exceeding and eternal weight of glory. For we don't look on the things that are seen, but we look on the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. For we have a building in heaven, not built with hands, built by the eternal God. And then Paul says, for in this we groan. We are eagerly awaiting, and that is our hope. And so we have this blessed hope, and all creation is groaning and hoping with you and I. We have the assurance that the Holy Spirit lives within us. That is the first fruits. In other words, that is the guarantee that the full harvest will come one day. That's an Old Testament harvest feast. When the first fruits were given, they were given it in hope that the harvest was going to come in. And then all we have to do is reflect on those who have ran the race with faithfulness. And to see how God brought about so many things in their lives. Not everything was good. Not everything that happened to Joseph was good. His brothers lying. Potiphar putting him in the prison, unaccused, uncondemned, and yet finding himself in the dungeon. And then when the butler, the the wine giver, forgets about him, And yet, we can look at his life and we can know for certain that God does work all things together for good. So we've got great hope. Hope because our present sufferings, they cannot compare to our future glory. They're not even in the same ballpark. They're not in the same arena. They are such a disparage between our suffering and our glories that they become greatly dim in the light of his glory and grace. That's why the hymn writer said, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his lovely face for the things of earth. They go strangely dim in the marvel of his glory and grace. So we have the example of creation. Suffering right now and the future glory that is ours. I consider, Paul says, that the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of creation eagerly awaits the revealing of the sons of God. I want you to note in this context, because it's going to build up to chapter 8, verses 28 through 30, that Paul is talking about future glory. This is the context. Future glory for creation and future glory for you and I. It's not been realized yet. That's the context. Now, why was creation subject to futility? Well, we know it was sin that entered the world, right? Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through chapter 3, verse 19, that man's sin brought this curse upon the earth, and so God subjected all of earth to futility. Now, why would God do that? Let's read. For the creation was subjected to futility. The word futility means despair. It means unrealized expectations that don't come to fruition, that don't come to pass. 
God does not want us to feel like this is our home. God does not want us to feel like this is the place that we can be comfortable. I don't care who wrote that book, Your Best Life Now, it is a lie. Our best life is to come. If our best life is now, this is pretty, pretty bad. I am so glad that God has subjected this life to futility. Everything that you and I have is going to dissolve and it's going to melt with fervent heat. So what kind of people ought we to be as we call on God? We ought to be looking and gloriously waiting for his return. So God has subjected it in futility, not willingly, but because him who subjected it, why? Subjected it in hope that it's going to get better, that it's not always going to be like this. That's why God cursed this earth. He didn't want man's work to bring him satisfaction. I remember my son one time, he wrote me and he says, Dad, he says, why is work so bad? Why, why don't I feel a sense of fulfillment? Why do I have to get up every day and just, just work? I says, because God didn't mean it to fulfill you. He meant him, Jesus, alone to fulfill you. He subjected all the things that you do to futility. The older I got as a runner, all I could look forward to was getting slower. <laughs> that was it. And whatever it is that you are looking forward to on this earth, it winds down. It does not get better. The law of entropy applies to us. And God subjected it in futility so that we might have hope for something more glorious than you and I could ever imagine. So he subjected it in futility because creation will be delivered from the bondage of corruption. Notice that corruption has a way of enslaving us, but Christ has a way of liberating us. You are set free from the temporal things that never can bring you joy and satisfaction. And you are liberated to a life of worshiping and fellowshipping with Christ. That's what he's done. For we know, and I want us to look at this word know. It's the Greek word oida. There's several words in the original language to know. But this is in the perfect tense. It's a tense that describes something of the past that has continuous results. And so what Paul is using here, this verb, to know, he uses it again in verse 28. It's something that we know, not intuitively, but we know it because we have observed it and we know it to be true. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors. You and I have observed this. We know it to be true. We were thankful for all the snow that we got in Utah this winter. <laughs> Some of us were. <laughs> and when we are in the middle of drought this summer, all of us will be. But I tell you, those people who are living by the Ogden River, and their yards are flooding, and their roads are being et away, or those people in Florida who were barraged by hurricanes or by earthquakes that you and I see. So by experience, Paul is saying, we know. 
As beautiful as creation is, it is not the way it ought to be. There's pestilence. There's famines. There's flooding. And there's drought. And there's extremes. And you and I are not going to fix the environment by driving electric cars, by the way. (laughs) Because creation is groaning. And you and I, all we have to do is observe it and we can know it. That's what Paul's point is here. And then, look at this. Not only that. It's not just creation that's not right. It's not just creation that's having the problems. Not only that, verse 23, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit. I'm so glad he said, who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Because that is our guarantee that things are going to get better. If you and I have the glorious Holy Spirit right now, and you and I can walk with God right now, and we can enjoy the commune with each other because His Holy Spirit bears witness with your spirit that we are both brothers and sisters in Christ, and we have that right now in these earthly clay bodies that are falling apart, can you imagine how glorious it's going to be when we have the adoption of these bodies? Oh, it's going to be so wonderfully glorious. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan within ourselves. So creation is groaning. We are groaning. And what is it that we are longing for? We are eagerly waiting for the adoption. And then you've got a comma in your Bible after the word adoption. And then you've got an appositive. That means a phrase that simply renames and further defines what adoption is. Adoption, the final consummation of salvation. It's not complete yet. We're saved in hope of the completion of salvation. We are completely justified right now, but we are not completely sanctified right now. You and I are still agonizing over sin. You and I are still groaning. You and I still want to see that perfection and we look at our lives and we're not what we ought to be and we groan and we say, oh, wretched man, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then we say, oh, thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. Because that's what we are looking forward to. We have the first fruits of the Spirit, however. Right now, you and I can take the Holy Spirit by His power and put to death what? the deeds of the body, and we have to do that daily. But one day, the adoption is going to be complete, and I don't have to fight sin anymore. You won't have to fight sin anymore. You won't have to fight temptation. You will have the complete adoption. That is the redemption of this body with these members that just seem to want to do the wrong thing and say the wrong thing and act the wrong way. Oh, what a wonderful day that will be when our Savior we will see. We will look upon His face, the one who saved me by His grace. When I take Him by the hand and He leads me into that promised land, what a day, what a glorious day that will be. That's what you and I are looking for. That is our hope. That's what keeps us going as believers. And Paul says we're groaning, for we are saved in this hope. 
In other words, it's a package deal. When you and I are saved, God completely forgives us, and he gives us a hope that we are going to be transformed and we are going to look like his glorious body one day. But we hope for what is not seen. Remember that, because that's going to help us in the context when we get down to a hard verse 28 through 30, that Paul is looking at things that we know in the past and we've experienced them. He's looking for a future hope. And he's also saying that hope that we have right now is something that we don't see and we don't realize yet. That's going to help us in this context. The second reason you and I can have incredible hope is because we've been given the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is our intercessor. The Holy Spirit, based on our weaknesses, we don't even know how to pray because we are in these earthly bodies and we don't even know what to ask. And we don't even know how to ask. And sometimes we ask with the wrong motives, but the Holy Spirit is searching. He says, no, that's not what he really needs. That's not what he really wants. This is what he needs, and this is what you need to give him, God. And I'm so thankful for that. Likewise, the Spirit helps our our infirmities, the old King James, weakness. The weakness there, that word for weakness, it means the idea of our corrupted flesh. The trials that we're going through and the sufferings that we have because we are in broken bodies. So our corrupted flesh and our temptations and the Holy Spirit knows exactly what those things are. And as we are praying, I'll give you an example yesterday. A man called me on the phone and we were counseling back and forth. And I gave him some bad advice. I'll just be honest with you. You know why I gave him some bad advice? Because I got into my flesh. And I was angry at the situation that he was looking at. And I said, this is what you ought to do. And I mean, I was just, you know, just self-righteous, self-indignant. I mean, I was just saying this, 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 this. Then my wife came home. And when I don't listen to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit sends my wife. (laughs) And so I asked her, I says, what advice would you give? And she gave the most godly answer. And I was so under conviction. And I wrote that man a text message. And I said, this is what you need to do. I should have gave my wife. I did. I did. I said, Tracy said this. I didn't say it. And he wrote back. He says, you've got a godly wife. And I said, I, you and I were both way out to lunch, weren't we? He says, yeah, yeah, we were. But if I, when I got off the phone with him, I said, both of us, I said, you go pray and I'm going to go pray. I believe with all my heart the Holy Spirit was praying and said, Pat's not getting it. You need to straighten him out, Holy Spirit. And so God put it on my heart to ask my wife, and my wife was God's messenger. And I got it that time, Lord. Thank you. But that's the way God works. When we are praying, and we're praying off on the wrong trail, the Holy Spirit is there because he's searching and he knows exactly what we should be asking for. He prays for us with groanings which can't be uttered. Notice that creation is groaning for something glorious in liberty. Notice that you and I who have the first fruits are groaning, wanting something better. And he's also saying the Holy Spirit is groaning. Because there's something better that he wants to give us. So this is the context of a difficult verses to properly 
interpret, and apply. And that's verses 28 through 30. So let's just go gradually through this, and I'm going to try to give you my interpretation and what I think is the best explanation of this passage. So before I get there, I want to just share with you there are two traditional interpretations of this passage. And these two traditional interpretations really fall on the Reformers, Jacob Arminius and John Calvin. You're familiar, some of you, with their debates over this whole doctrine of election. Well, Jacob Arminius took this passage and debated with John Calvin, and Jacob Arminius said that this foreknowledge is God looking through the quarters of time, and he knows previously who is going to believe. And God is going to work all things together for those who God knew previously would accept Jesus. John Calvin says, I disagree with you. I believe this is God choosing people unilaterally, unconditionally, before they were ever born, before they did anything good or bad, and that God has chosen them to be saved, and God is going to work everything good for those people whom he chose before they were born to salvation. So that's the, the, the two, two sides of this debate. But that, that debate didn't originate until the 1500s. So we've got to ask ourselves, what was Paul trying to say in this passage? Paul's argument is hope. Hope for what? Hope for future glory. Hope for something that we do not yet see. Sufferings are what we are going through right now. And Paul's trying to give them strong consolation for what's going on right now. And so Paul uses this word, we know, and it's the same word, oida, the same word that was used in 822, where we know by looking at what is happening in creation, what is going to happen. So Paul uses this word, oida, and the word to know here means that to know by looking at what's happened in the past, to know by experience that this is what you and I should expect. And Paul says we know by looking at things in the past what to expect. By looking at things in the past, we know that all things work together for good. Now, who does it work together for? It's for those who love God. To those who are called according to his purpose. Again, that's an appositional phrase. It's renaming those who love God. So those who love God are the same people who are the called according to his name. So if you are in Christ because you love the Savior, then you are called according to the purposes of God. And Paul says we know that by looking experientially by those in the past, that God is working all things. And then in verse 29, he says, for whom he foreknew. So Paul is absolutely certain. Paul has no doubt whatsoever that everything is going to work together for good. For who? For those whom he foreknew. Now, this is the crux of the argument for both Jacob Arminius and for John Calvin, this word foreknew. But if you look this word up in a lexicon or you look at it in the Greek usage, it's pro Gnosko. 
It simply means to know something previously, to know someone previously. So the ones that he knew previously, how does Paul know that God works everything for good? Because the ones that God knew previously, he also predestined them to be conformed to the image of his son. Now let me give you an example of how that might work in our common day life. If I went into work and my boss tells me, this is something that you're going to have to get done. And I say, I already knew that. It doesn't mean that I looked through the corridors of time and knew that. No, I already had previous information about that. And I knew it beforehand. That's what this word means. Paul uses this in Acts chapter 26 and verse 5, where he gives his personal testimony. It's the exact same Greek word, prognosko. And he says, if those who knew me previously would testify, they would tell you that I persecuted the church and that I was a Pharisee, those who previously knew me. It wasn't that these people looked through the corridors of time and knew Paul. It wasn't that they knew Paul before he was born and predestined him by foreknowledge to be something. No, he's simply saying, those people who previously knew me. And so Paul's argument here is we know that all things work together for good because those whom God previously knew and had a relationship in the past, like Joseph, like Moses, like the prophets, God was always, in every instance, working things together for good. Like Joshua, when he went up to the city of Ai, and he was soundly defeated because of that first battle, that God even worked that for good for Joshua's sake. The next time they used their retreat as a way to ambush and to destroy the city, and Paul says, you can just look back, story after story after story, those who God previously knew, he was always doing this. And you and I can have hope because our God is the same God as theirs, and our God will always do what is good for you and I. Another argument in favor of this interpretation is that they might be, that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brethren. So who was he the firstborn for? People that haven't died and been, been redeemed yet or, or completely justified and sanctified yet? No, he was the firstborn for those in the Old Testament. When he came and he was raised from the dead, he became the firstborn for those in the past. And that's what Paul is referring to. And then the third argument is found in verse 30. Moreover, whom he predestined, predestination has to do with those who are in Christ. You look at it every use of the New Testament. Predestined has those who are in Christ. Everyone who is in Christ is predestined to be like Jesus. We are predestined to be adopted. We are predestined to be holy and to be blameless in his sight. Those who are in Christ. These also he called, those whom he called, he also justified, those whom he justified, he also glorified. So who has he glorified? Has he glorified any of us yet? No. Did he glorify any of the people that were reading this letter at this time? No. Now, again, I'll be fair to the Reformed theology and the way that they would interpret that. They would say that Paul is using the aorist tense, the past tense, of something complete 
because Paul is so sure that those whom God chose before the foundation of the world are going to be glorified, so he uses the past tense. And here's the problem with that argument. There's no other clear example anywhere in the Bible where Paul uses a past tense to refer to something that's future. And so Paul is using this past tense to refer to the saints of the Old Testament, I believe, whom he called, whom he justified, and whom he has glorified. And his argument here is how can I know for exact certainty that no matter what happens in my life, that whatever God gives me and whatever God allows to fall in my lap, how bad it might be, I can know for certain that, certain that God is going to work it all together for good. Why? Because I know God has always been faithful to those who love Him and those who are the called according to His purposes. And everyone that God foreknew previous relationship with every one of those people ended up looking more like Jesus because of what they went through. And that is our hope today. Our hope is because of all creation groaning. It was subjected to futility so that it might look forward to the redemption of all that God created. You and I have been given the first fruits we groan within ourselves. We are looking forward to the redemption of our bodies, the full adoption that we will receive. Behold, the love of God, 1 John 3, 1. Behold what manner of love that God has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God. Therefore, the world doesn't know us because it didn't know Him. But it does not yet appear what we shall be. For when He appears, then we will see Him as He is, and then we will be like Him, for then we will see Him. And everyone, looks into this, everyone who has this hope, the hope of the future glorification, everyone who has that hope purifies himself even as he is pure. And you and I can have incredible hope because when we don't even know how to pray, when we don't even know what to pray for, we have got an intercessor that is searching our hearts, and he knows exactly what we need, and that's what the Holy Spirit's going to grant us. And then you and I can have absolute certainty. We know that all things work together for good. No shadow of doubt whatsoever, because those that God previously knew in the Old Testament, God worked everything out for their good. God conformed them more like the Son. Jesus was the firstborn of those many brethren, and He is going to be our firstborn when you and I are glorified. We have incredible hope today. So I pray that whatever you are facing whatever discouragement, whatever despair you might need, uh, just a, a message from the Lord. First of all, I want you to tell yourself this. What I'm going through right now, it can't even compare. It can't hold a candle to what it's going to be like 
when I'm in the presence of Jesus. That this present suffering is but for a moment. This present suffering is a light affliction. This present suffering is working for me and exceeding an eternal weight of glory. When you're suffering and when you're going through a trial and you are praying, God will do something supernatural as you pray because you have been given the first fruits of the Spirit. That guarantees that what God began in you, Philippians 1.6, He will bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. You can rest assured of that. And open up your Bibles. Start reading what God did for those whom He previously knew. Read through the Exodus story. Every time they murmured, every time they complained, God was there. That is our God, and you and I have wonderful hope. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for the hope that is set before us. Lord, help us to run with endurance this race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. He is the author, and he is the finisher of our faith who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. We thank you for our blessed hope and the great appearing of our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name.